offering tonight. <coughs> Just remind you of Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m. And uh, we invite you to be back here with us. Those of you that may be watching online, come and join us because God is doing something great and He can do something great for you. There's no limits with the Lord. Amen. So good to have all of our e visitors here for Easter Sunday morning service. And we hope that some of those folks will be back as well. Amen. Do you love the Lord tonight? Well, He loves you. He cares about all of us and all the things that we're going through. Tonight we're going to continue on in this topic of we're God's spiritual, we are God's spiritual house. And uh, we're, we're seeing tonight what the Lord really wants from us. And what his plan is and who he is, because he is a big part of this spiritual house. And it goes beyond what we can see with our eyes or even hear with our ears or feel with our hands. It goes beyond that. It is a supernatural relationship, that relationship with the Lord. Our topic scripture is found in Psalm 127. And it says, except the Lord build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And that's the part that we're dealing with. Except the Lord build the house, those that labor, labor in vain. And when it's the, the Lord is all capitalized, as it is in that particular verse, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It means Jehovah, the great I am, as Sister Tara prayed. You know, he's the great I am, and he is the builder of the church. And if he doesn't build the church, then the church is built in vain. And uh, we need him. And more than we need him to be on our side, we need to be on his side. <laughs> Just like the angel of the Lord, who I think was Christ, told Joshua when Joshua asked him right before Jericho, he, the angel of the Lord met him and he said, are you for us or for the enemy? And the angel of the Lord said, Neither, for as the captain of the host of the Lord have I come. So it's God's side. We want to be on his side because his side is the right side. Well, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this talks about the building that we have. And, and again, I'm reading from this large print uh, study Bible that I have. It's the one of today's English version, I think it is. And it says, according to the grace of God, which has been given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, but another builds on it. Now let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no one can lay another foundation than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, or we could say of the ministry, of your ministry. He has to be the foundation. If he is not the foundation, then there's a shaky ground that we are upon. But when he is the foundation, we are on a sure foundation, a solid foundation. And when we talk about Jesus, we can't just say Jesus. We need to say Jesus Christ, because that's what Paul said here in this passage. He said Jesus Christ, 
Because what it means is Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, comes from the name Joshua, by the way. Jehovah is salvation. And it means then that he is the one from whom we derive our help and our strength. He is the one who helps us every day in our life. He is the one who came and lived as a man and understands everything that we go through. Oh, you just when you thought you had a new experience, check the Word, you probably will find something in the Word. And I would say, should say, should not say probably, I say you will find something in the Word that relates to that experience you're going through. Because Christ went through everything that we go through. Caleb, he was even 12 years old at one time. He did. He did. Amen. But then, then we have not only the name Jesus, but we have the name Christ, which means Messiah. It is the New Testament version of the Old Testament, Messiah, Christ. He is the Christ, uh, the Son of the living God. Just like Peter proclaimed, at Caesarea Philippi, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's who he is. That's a foundational statement for us in our belief system. If we don't have that faith that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, then we don't have a belief. We don't have a hope. But because we know that he is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, we have a great hope and a strong foundation. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And what he's saying is, there is no other way to God. Oh, yes, there are religions that teach, since, for instance, as the Baha'i religion, there are many ways to God. Or the theosophy religion teaches the same thing. They seven ascended masters, and one of them they say is Jesus, and all of them show ways to God. No! There is only one way to the Father. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm sorry if some people feel that's exclu exclusive. I didn't say it. Jesus did. <laughs> but I want to tell you something about uh, the fact that Jesus is exclusive. He is able to minister to anyone who is hungry after him, even if they have never heard the gospel message. I'll tell you a little story. When I was growing up at First Assembly, we had an evangelist come through. His name was B.R., and I don't know what the B.R. stood for. But those were his initials. Minton was his last name. And he spoke from a prophecy chart that he had spread from one side of the auditorium to the other. And that was just really interesting to me when I was a, a young person. And, uh, but the message that really stuck with me was his testimony. Because he was born and raised on the reservation in Florida. He was an Indian. And he was raised on the Indian Reservation. By the time he was 18 years of age, he had done everything and said anything and, and beat anybody up and, and done all kinds of evil things. Everything that he could experience in life, he had done it. He was addicted. He was an alcoholic. 
All of these things were in his life. He was at the point of taking his own life. And he cried out to God and said, God, all I know of your name is when my parents and others swear. If you will reveal yourself to me, if you are real, reveal yourself to me and I will serve you. And whether he went into a dream or a trance, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't know. But in that time after he'd said that, he saw a vision of the last week of Christ's life, just as it is outlined in the Scriptures. And when he saw that, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Amen. What I'm trying to tell you is that anyone, no matter who they are, if they cry out to the Lord, He will reveal Himself to them. There is no excuse for someone who is hungry not having heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone can hear. Scriptures tell us that, that we are witnesses. It also tells us that in the tribulation period there will be 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Also, Revelation tells us that the angels will be witnesses and from heaven about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, there's no one that has any excuse. Well, that was a rabbit trail that I chased, but there it goes anyway. No one need not, need ever say that they don't know about the Lord because if there's that hunger to know, they can know. And the gospel message in the United States, of course, is spread near and far. And we hear about it at Easter. We hear about it at Christmas. And all through the year, it is spoken about. Amen. I like what Paul says here in the last part of this passage, too. Or he talks about, excuse me, at the first part of this passage, he talks about the grace of the Lord. We've received the grace of the Lord. We sing that song, that great hymn of the faith, Amazing Grace. But do we really understand what grace is? Grace is unmerited or unearned, undeserved favor. When the Lord gives me something that I didn't deserve, He's given me life. He's given me a home in heaven. He's given me the ability or the opportunity to participate in His kingdom. Each of you have that ability to participate, to do something for the kingdom of God. And no one person does anything that is greater than another person. Every one of us has a great ministry that we can be involved in. And God has something for each one of us to do. Praise the Lord. And so that's, that's a wonderful thing. Well, I want to go now to 1 Corinthians 15 because I want to talk about who this... Lord Jesus Christ is in relationship to our being able, required, needed, or Him being worthy for us to worship. If that makes sense, as I put all those words together, <laughs> that why would we worship Him? Why would we declare Him to be the chief cornerstone of the church. Jesus Christ has done something that no other person can do or has done. 
There is no other person on this earth that has ever fulfilled 331 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah completely in his lifetime as Jesus did. 331. Oh, there was a fellow back in 1988, I think it was, that said that he had fulfilled four, count them, one, two, three, four prophecies of the Messiah. And so therefore he proclaimed that he was the Messiah. His name, I think, was Benjamin Krim. He's long past now. He never did fulfill what he had hoped would be the Messianic promise. But Jesus fulfilled 331. That is mind-boggling. So mind-boggling that they say that if there were to be odds on it in Las Vegas, that it would be like taking that wall there and putting a one followed by zeros all along that wall over one. That's how impossible it would be for all those prophecies to be fulfilled in one person. And I'm not a betting person, but that means this, that everybody would be betting against that happening in that one man. But Jesus did it. He fulfilled all those prophecies. Here's what it says. Paul is speaking here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. He died for my sins. You know, we talked about that. We sang that in the song tonight. You know, arms spread wide. Christ spread His arms wide. Why can't we spread our arms wide and worship Him? He spread His arms wide and died for us. He gave His life because we were sinners and we could not help ourselves. He died on the cross for us. That was why part of the reason why He was so burdened about going to the cross and so overwhelmed by it all because here is the sinless Son of God who is now bearing the guilt and the punishment for all the sins of the world, the murder, the theft, the adultery, all of those things, the blasphemies, He bore upon Himself. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, And He, God, made Him, Jesus, to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Because Christ died for my sins, I become then righteous, made in right standing with God. Wow. Let's go on to see what it says. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Isaiah 53 talks about how he was buried with the rich. It was a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea who had, had hollowed this tomb out for himself. He was a very wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. And he hollowed that tomb out of a rock for himself. And never had laid any member of his family in there. And when Jesus had died... He went and begged the body so that he could bury it in that tomb which was close to the cross. But then he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day. Wow! 
No one again, no one again, again, let me repeat it again, no one has ever done that before. Oh, Jesus raised people from the dead, yes, but they eventually died. There have been others that in the course of the Christian history have been raised from the dead, but they also have died. But Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. And He is forever and ever alive. Praise the Lord. He ever lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews says. He's praying for you right now, Di. He's praying for Dennis. He really needs it. Amen. <laughs> Dennis got a doctor's appointments next week. We need to pray for him. Let's remember to do that next week. But Jesus is praying for us when we go through trials and difficulties. Whatever happens in our lives, he knows. Tim, he's going to be there with you on Friday when you go to your work. Just if you don't believe it, just ask him a Friday morning to go with you and to be with you and to help you. He will. He will because he loves us so very much. Ah, says then, he was seen by Cephas, who is Peter, and then by the twelve. Then he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, all of whom the greater part remain to this present time, though some have passed away. Then he was seen by James and then by all of the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born at the wrong time. Wow. The message of God's house is that Christ died and he rose again. He died and he rose again. We have a hope that is steadfast and sure. We know uh, that old hymn, He lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives, He lives within my heart. I know He lives because He lives in my heart. When we wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night or throughout our day, we can call out His name, Jesus, cherished. And He's right there. Jesus. He's right there. Praise the Lord. Number five, he attested, his resurrection was attested to by Cephas or Peter, then by all of the twelve, which includes Matthias, because remember, Matthias was chosen after Judas hung himself, and then 500 brothers at one time. You might say, someone might say, well, how could they ever gather that many people together at one time? Well, in the Gospels, don't you remember reading there? It said that Jesus fed the 5,000, and he also fed the 4,000. So, surely 500 could get together. Although I don't know where the 380 went on the day of Pentecost, but that's another question. I guess we'll have to ask them when we get to heaven. You know, they disappeared, and maybe they got in on the second round when the Holy Spirit was outpoured as, as uh, the disciples went forth. But then Paul says he also appeared to James, who was the brother of Christ, the leader of the church, and all of the apostles. Now, why would he put that in there? Because, don't you see, to me that reveals to 
and I just understood this today. I read this passage many times, but I just understood it today, Danielle, that, that what he's saying there is that there are more apostles than the twelve. So he appeared unto all of the apostles. And lastly, he says, he appeared to me, or to Paul, on the road to Damascus, remember? Jesus appeared to Paul. Now, the other thing that we can see, number six, historically, Christ's death and resurrection, death and resurrection, are recorded by the historian Josephus, who writes, wrote a book that is translated into English that's about that thick. And fortunately, there's an appendix in the back. Because <laughs> I, I was kind of reading it through today and kind of looking for that, but because I knew that Jesus was referenced there. But oh, when I looked in the, in the concordance and found his name, and then I could pinpoint it more accurately and found it. But it was there. I knew it was there. That Josephus, a historian of the Jewish people that was told by the Romans to write this history of the Jews recorded that Jesus Christ says, and he says, who was a teacher? Although we really can't call him that. He was the son of God. <laughs> How did he die? And he rose again from the dead. So there's a, a historian, not one of the gospel writers, but one of the historians that recorded that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Now the, the other question I have about the resurrection is this, though. <coughs> Wait, if you, if you tell somebody something, you expect it to be true, right? You expect them to believe your word, right, Brother Sherman? I mean, if you tell them, if Sherman tells them something, then they're going to believe that that's true, and you've got a good reputation. But boy, if you told them then that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, you better know that that's true, hadn't you? The disciples knew that it was true. Now, in the book of Matthew, it says that the chief priest when the soldiers came and told them that Jesus had risen from the dead and that his body was missing, the chief priest said, okay, just spread this rumor. Tell the people that the disciples came and stole the body. Did the rumor stick? No, it didn't stick. But let me ask you this question. Would any of you in this room give your life for something that you knew was not true? I see a few heads shaking. Some are still pondering that question. <laughs> but, but we wouldn't die for something that was not true, would we? But we would be willing to die for the truth. And the reason I say that is because... You can read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, for instance. And, of course, you can read some of them uh, about the, in the Scriptures, about people in the Scriptures that gave their lives for the Gospel. They could have at any time said, Wait! I don't want to go through crucifixion. I've seen how much people suffer 
when they are crucified, because they were crucifying Christians all over the Roman Empire. At any time, when the disciples were arrested or brought before uh, uh, the, the governor or anybody else, the Jewish leaders, at any time, if Jesus were still alive or if his body had been taken, they could have said, oh, let me show you where his body is. But they didn't. They died because they believed that Jesus died and rose again and that because he did, they would have a part in his resurrection, that it was the truth. And so they gave their lives for the truth. Now, let's forget about these Gospels. False Gospels is what I'm going to call them. I'm just going to pull it out. There it is. There are false Gospels that say Jesus didn't die. He took a drug on the cross, and, and when he brought, was brought down, he went off and he married Mary Magdalene. There's that one, too. That's a false gospel. But yet people will believe that hook, line, and sinker instead of believing the Word of God. But what is our responsibility as Christians? Our responsibility as Christians is to continue to believe in the Word and to stand fast on the Word of God and believe it and speak it and not back down. Because we're the church. And that's what we believe. Amen. Let's go on to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 4. Coming to him, which is Jesus, as to a living stone who is rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. So we come in all of our life, every part of our being, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ recognizing that he was rejected by men and he will be rejected by men, but recognizing that he is precious to us because he's forgiven us of our sins and he's made a place for us in heaven and he loves us and he's walking with us day by day. You also as living stones being built up into a spiritual house as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the living stone. He's the one that we want to be like. He's the one that we pattern our life after. That's why we are called Christians, because it means to be Christ-like. And then we have been chosen. I remember, remember when you were a kid and you were on the playground and they picked teams, and you always wanted to be chosen to be on somebody's team, right? And that was, that was good to be chosen. But you know what? Christ has picked you to be on his team, and that's the best team that you could be on. You've been chosen to be a living stone as part of God's house. And a part of that is what we've done already tonight. As we've worshiped, we've lifted up as a holy priesthood, we've lifted up and offered sacrifices to God. Oh, I know, it's sometimes my arm hurts when I raise my hand. Anybody else, you identify with that? My arm hurts and I don't feel like raising my hand. Or sometimes I'm tired and I don't feel like standing up. But I, if we do it anyway, that's a sacrifice of praise as we enter in, press through that 
what we don't want to. But our lives also are to be a sacrifice. Paul wrote about that in Romans 12. He said God has called us to be living sacrifices. And I've heard it long ago, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. So the living sacrifice has to keep coming up to the altar, right? And committing our lives to the Lord, committing ourselves to God. Amen. Over in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may declare the goodness of Him who has called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. In times past, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we are a chosen people. God chose you and your royalty. You know, to think about where you've come from. You know, I grew up poor and I didn't even know I was poor. You know, we didn't have a whole lot, a whole lot of money to do extracurricular stuff. You know, I had to start working when I was 12 years old to earn any money to do stuff. And part of that I eventually paid my sisters an allowance because they weren't getting any money. You know, but, you know, times were hard. But you know what? God is blessed. And we are blessed. And you know what, also? We are royalty in God. We're not a people that are just in the Irish descendant or the descendant of an Irish immigrant, even. In fact, some of my Irish immigrant citizens were indentured servants and they came to the United States and they were supposed to set, serve for seven years and they skipped out. That's a secret. Nobody knows that. But that's, you know, every one of us has a history, something like that. But you know what? God's made us royalty. He's forgiven us of all of our transgressions and given, put the king's ring upon our finger. Amen. We are holy, not because of our own holiness, but because of the holiness of Christ. And not only that, but we belong to the Lord. I love that old hymn, and I sing it every once in a while still. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone but for eternity. That's a great song. It's a great thought, but it's something we need to keep in mind in our lives as well, that we belong to Jesus Christ. Not only that, but He also belongs to us. Amen. And we are called. How many are called? I didn't say called to preach. I said, how many are called? Amen. You're called, and you're not just called to preach. All of us are called to do what? To declare that Jesus Christ has defeated the enemy. We are called to declare that in our lives, and when necessary, use words, as one of the ancient fathers said. 
We're called to be witnesses and when necessary, use words. So what's it saying? That if we were put on trial for being a Christian, our lives would ha- provide, provide enough evidence to convict us. <laughs> Just like the, the old prophet Daniel. When he was told that, well, you can't pray to anybody else but the king for 30 days, what did he do? It says, he went as was his habit at the time of prayer, opened his windows up, and prayed toward Jerusalem. Because he wasn't ashamed of God and of Christ, the Messiah that was to come. He looked forward to him coming, and he knew that God was in control. Amen. You can read that in the book of Daniel because his the prophecies he received, you know, really are astounding as they reveal church the world history. But Christ Jesus has defeated the enemy. One of my pet peeves is this new world teaching that says good and evil are always battling and it's one is going to win and the other one's going to lose and they're equal in power. I, that just grates against me. And you see it in that symbol that's called the yin and the yang, or the yin and the yang, maybe it is, where it's a black thing uh, on one part and white on the other part. It's a, they're, and they're always fighting there. I don't, don't want you to know there is no dualism in the kingdom of God. Who is the one who wants there to be dualism? The one that is the underdog. (laughs) And that's the enemy. Because Jesus Christ has already defeated him. The very first prophecy in the Old Testament was in the Garden of Eden. And what did God say? That the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the enemy, the snake, his seed would bruise his heel, but Jesus Christ would crush his head. And that's what Jesus did at the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection. So he has overcome, and he is the victor. And we're on the winning side. Amen. And you can get a little excited about that. It's okay. Contain your enthusiasm, right? All right. Eleventh point. Talks about mercy in this passage. And I just say again that mercy is when we get what we don't deserve. Because we deserve to be punished for our sins. But God has mercy on us. And He has forgiven us and helped us to walk with Him. And then He gives us a commandment. Jesus did Himself. Before he left to go to heaven, he said this in Mark chapter 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Amen. Go believe. 
believe the everlasting gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe with all of your heart. Never doubt. Stand firm upon your belief. He is the rock. He is the foundation of the church. Stand in Him. Then, preach, which means proclaim. God doesn't call everybody to be a preacher. But God does call everybody to proclaim. <laughs> if you are able, alive and well and breathing, whether you speak English, Southeast Missouri English, or the King's English, or whether you speak sign language, or whether you speak Spanish, whatever you speak, you can proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ dead and risen again. Hallelujah. Praise God. That is the essence of the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. I believe. That's the gospel. And the gospel word means good news, Brother Dave. The good news that Jesus came. Good news. And then he says, we're going to cast out demons. So that means we need not be afraid if we come in contact with someone who is demonized. We have the authority through Jesus Christ to deal with that person. Then it says, we will speak with new tongues. And I know that as Charismatics and Pentecostals, we want to say that that's God's giving us a prayer language, and I believe that. But I think also it means God's going to make you talk a little different than what you used to. You're not going to use curse words anymore. You're not going to slander your neighbor anymore. You're not going to talk down to people anymore or treat people badly anymore. You're going to have a new disposition because of Christ. Then he goes on to say, I quit meddling and go on, okay? Don't let the attack of the evil overcome you, whether it's by poison or by snakes. I have some snakes around my house. Now, I'm wise, Brother Sherman. I wear my boots when I'm out there and I'm going to go around those snakes. And I, I'm wise. I don't want to be snake bit. But if I am snake bit, like Paul was, he innocently picked up some wood and the snake grabbed hold of him as he threw the wood into the fire. He shook the snake off and put it in the fire. If you're bitten by a snake, trust in the Lord that he's going to deliver you. That's what the word says. Amen. And then you shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall be healed. Interesting the way that that's phrased. You see, it doesn't say you need to call for the pastor to come. Even though James says, if any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them anoint with oil and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. I quoted that really fast so you could get it. But he says right here, Jesus said this. He said, you shall, didn't say you're going to pray. He said, you're going to lay hands on them. And they'll be healed. Now, let me just give you a little wisdom, okay? I was in a minister's meeting in Michigan. I was, I was pastoring up there. And one of the brothers that was one of the other pastors, <coughs> his mother-in-law, who was a pastor's wife, had cancer. 
and she'd been through chemotherapy. And at one point in this meeting, and you know what happens when you get chemotherapy, right? You, you get taller than your hair, right? So, and she became taller than her hair. But he was really burdened for her, and they called her up for prayer so that the, the ministers could pray for her. And he jerked her so hard that her wig flew off. <laughs> now we can laugh at that right now, but I don't think it was very amusing to her. <laughs> but I share that to tell you this. You don't have to lay hands hard on people when you pray for them. It's more about a, a point of contact and you believing God and believing that as you pray, His Holy Spirit's going to flow through your hand into their body and they're going to be touched right then. Amen. So, let's stand. Is there anybody in here tonight that needs a touch in their body? Nobody great. We're in all perfect health then, huh? Okay. Praise the Lord. Is there anybody that needs prayer to be activated for the Lord to move through you? Amen. I want you to come up here. Sister Virginia, you come up here with me, okay? Amen. Anybody else? Come on. <clears throat> We're not going to prolong this part. We're not going to hold you very long either. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Is anybody else? We'll wait just a few minutes. Come on. Is it like pulling teeth at you?